Okay, I'll admit it. I like food way too much. Definitely a subject that catches my interest. Of course, I enjoy local history as well. So when those two subjects come together, I mean, how cool is that? And it's that very combination that's on the plan today, right here on Accidentally Historic. Back, 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 back. Step into our time machine. Real stories of real people. Some good, some bad, some very strange. And all accidentally historic. Welcome to Accidentally Historic, the podcast of the Historical Society of Pottawatomie County. Hi, I'm your host, Richard Warner. You know how joggers say they can get a high from running? Well, I can get a high from eating Butterbrickle ice cream. Butterbrickle was always one of my favorites. And the fact that it was invented right here in the Metro makes it all that much more special. Butterbrickle was a signature flavor of the Woodward Candy Company of Council Bluffs. John G. Woodward started in the candy business at a small firm run by Menard Duquette in 1885. He bought full interest in the company and changed the name to Woodward Candy in 1895. The place grew, taking up almost the entire block. That would be where the Ogden Place is today. Now, local lore is that the flavor and the candy were invented by Woodward, and the Blackstone Hotel shortly after added the candy to the ice cream, inventing Butterbrickle ice cream. So, is that true? Well, some claim Fenn Brothers in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, not Woodward, invented the Butterbrickle flavor. But I'm going to disagree with that. I think the confusion comes from the fact that Fenn Brothers bought the Woodward brand when Woodward closed in 1939. What is Butterbrickle? Okay, I'm not a cook, so I had to dumb this down enough so that I could understand it. So apologies to any foodies that are listening in. But here's my take on it. Butterbrickle is similar to toffee, except it has more butter. Okay, what's toffee? Toffee is butterscotch that is cooked longer. What's butterscotch? Butterscotch is brown sugar, butter, and cream, as opposed to caramel, which is granulated sugar, butter, cream, and a bit of vanilla. I googled all of this. So, bottom line, Butterbrickle starts from butterscotch. Butterscotch was invented in Yorkshire, England in 1848. It first popped up in the United States in Chicago in 1881. And who do we know that was living in Chicago in 1881? None other than Mr. John G. Woodward. Woodward was one of the first to use butterscotch in candy, so his experimentation with it and the transition to Butterbrickle makes good sense. Butterscotch was promoted quite heavily as uh, something of a company specialty for Woodward. Conventional local wisdom has it that Butterbrickle ice cream was invented at the Blackstone Hotel in Omaha when a chef there mixed Woodward's Butterbrickle with ice cream. And that theory makes sense. Woodward serviced the metro area very well. The Blackstone most certainly would have had ready access to Butterbrickle candy to stick into their ice cream. But there is some suggestion that Butterbrickle ice cream was actually invented by the Harding Ice Cream Company of Omaha. It is a fact that the Harding and Woodward families were friends, and uh, they spent summers together in the same colony, if you will, at Lake Okoboji. Harding family lore has it that one hot summer afternoon at the lake, Mr. Woodward was lamenting that it was hard to preserve and ship Butterbrickle candy in the warm months, uh, and it was affecting sales. Mrs. Harding suggested, well, why not put the candy into ice cream and market it that way during the summer? And Butterbrickle ice cream came about. So exactly who invented the ice cream remains a bit of a mystery, but either story you choose to believe, 
it doesn't change the fact that Butterbrickle ice cream was an invention of Omaha and Council Bluffs. Speaking of ice cream, a young entrepreneur by the name of Russell Stover, fresh off of a candy manufacturing failure in Des Moines, moved to Omaha in the 1920s. His fortunes changed when a young soda jerk showed him a new treat that he'd invented that he was calling the Ice Cream Bar. That's capital I and Scream, S-C-R-E-A-M. Stover liked the idea, but hated the name, so he rechristened the treat the Eskimo Pie, and the rest is history. Actually, I learned more about how that soda jerk came up with the idea from one of our guest speakers at a historical society program not too long back. Here's how Darcy Mulsby, our speaker, explained it. The story behind the Eskimo pie is that this guy named Christian Nelson had a confectioner's shop in Ottawa, in western Iowa, and a little kid came into the store one day and he had a nickel. And the kid says, I want a candy bar. No, 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 I think I'd like ice cream. He can't decide. Candy bar, ice cream. Candy bar, ice cream. And Mr. Nelson sees this and thinks, well, gosh, if we could just ice cream with chocolate, that'd be good, wouldn't it? So he figured out a way to actually make the candy coating stick to the ice cream. Because if you just mix chocolate and ice cream, they tend to melt together and make a milkshake, right? The Eskimo pie's still around. I just love some of that early Eskimo pie advertising, particularly the ad that says, you need to eat ice cream for good health. Gotta love that. As for Russell Stover, when I hear that name, I think candy, not ice cream. That's because Mr. Stover sold his stake in the ice cream venture, moved to Colorado, and used the money to go into the candy business. I do love coffee, almost as much as Butterbrickle ice cream, and Butternut is very much a familiar brand, and very much a product of the Metro. The story starts with a company called Paxton & Gallagher. They were a wholesale grocery company founded in 1879 by two Omaha businessmen, Ben Gallagher and William Paxton. And that's the same Paxton as in Paxton Hotel, and he was involved in several other projects as well. The company became one of the largest grocery companies in the West, but they really hit the big time when they launched Butternut Coffee in 1913. They said what made their coffee taste, quote, as sweet as a nut, unquote, was using gas instead of coal to roast the uh, green beans. Now, those of us who are old enough and who grew up in the area I'm sure fondly remember that smell of roasting coffee wafting all over Western Council Bluffs and that old market area of Omaha. The old Butternut Coffee Building at 9th and Jones was added to the National Register of Historic Places and was in the process of being transformed into apartments for the old market when it was destroyed by fire in 2004. Unfortunately, the building's infrastructure was largely wood, making the fire really hard to control. That iconic water tower on the roof, remember it? Shaped like a coffee can, crumbled into the flames. What a very sad ending for a building with a glorious history. It's 1927, and the poker players at the Blackstone Hotel in Omaha were hungry. Ruben Kolofkowski ordered a corned beef sandwich, and he said, put some sauerkraut on it. Well, the chef, Bernard Schimmel, decided to make something special, so he strained the sauerkraut, mixed it with Thousand Island dressing, added corned beef, Swiss cheese, sandwiched the whole thing in crisped rye bread, and Reuben loved it. He passed it around to the rest of the boys. They all liked it. Uh, and it became known as Reuben's Sandwich. And the creation was popular enough, they even added it to the hotel coffee shop's menu. And it kind of just sat there as a local thing until 1956, when a waitress entered the recipe into a contest and won. After that, the Reuben Sandwich gained fame 
all across the entire United States. Hey, you remember this ad? Ruffles have well, you get the drift. You know, it wasn't until recently I learned the fellow that figured out how to put the ridges and ruffles was from the metro. I hadn't known that. Now, both sides of the river can claim Bernhard Stommer because he was an Omahaan, but he also had some really nice lakefront property on the south side of Lake Matawa. He came up with his idea in 1948 and said he felt the process of cutting the potatoes into ridges actually changed the taste slightly. He felt Ruffles had a bit of a cheese taste, even though there was no cheese added, just because of the way they were cut. Not everybody always tastes the cheese in plain Ruffles, but a ridged potato chip is just more fun, and also a lot of people claim it holds the dip better. Stummer sold the rights to the Ruffles brand to the Frito Company in 1958. When I think of the Skinner Company, I think macaroni. And that's absolutely correct. Been around since 1911, the brand's still around today. But Lloyd and Paul Skinner were also the first to mix a fruit into a cereal. And Raisin Bran came into being in 1926. Raisin Bran is my personal favorite cereal. And there have been times when all I could find around the house were plain cornflakes, so I just mixed my own raisins in. Have you ever done that? It's not the same. So there must be more to the recipe of Raisin Bran than simply mixing cereal and raisins. But anyway, the company lost their patent exclusivity in the 1940s uh, because it was deemed that the patent was just too vague. So all sorts of other companies began producing Raisin Bran. The Skinner Company sold to Hershey Foods in 1979, but the Skinner Macaroni name is still visible in the old market today on that building that's home to lofts, and there are still Skinners in Omaha making food today. The James Skinner Baking Company produces pastries, and it's operated by the direct descendants of Skinner Macaroni co-founder Lloyd Skinner. Strictly speaking, I guess this one isn't metro, but Lincoln's kind of metro. I mean, it's just a short drive. So I'm going to throw in the cheese Frenchie. My mother loved them, and whenever we talk about local restaurants today, it's very likely the King's cheese Frenchie will come up. People loved them, and they remember them. The sandwich was invented by Larry Price, one of the founders of King's. However, the cheese Frenchie predates that by a long way. It goes all the way back to 1934, back to Larry Price's longtime stand at the Nebraska State Fair called The Topper. After a few years on the fair circuit and seeing the great demand for his food, he opened King's Food Host in Lincoln in 1954. But The Topper existed. I remember him at the Nebraska State Fair in Lincoln right up until the fair ended. And in fact, I believe they even made the transition to Grand Island. Mr. Price grew the King's chain to 172 restaurants across the United States before selling the franchise in 1972. In Council Bluffs, King's opened in the old Broadway Theater. That was in 1963. Then they moved to a new freestanding building on North Broadway in 1970. After King's closed, that building became Village Inn. And uh, the building's still there. It's home to Lansky's today. In Omaha, there were two King's fast food booths, stand-up booths at the West Roads when it opened in 1967, as well as King's restaurants at 72nd and Cass, 72nd and L, 30th and Farnham, and 16th and Howard. The Metro can also claim instant cake mix. July 1951, Duncan Hines Cake Mix, produced by the Nebraska Consolidated Mills, debuted in Omaha in two flavors. One was called Three Star. It was a vanilla mix and could be baked into yellow, white, or spice cake. And there was devil's food. 
and it went gangbusters. Housewives loved it. The product sold out in three weeks, and it took six months for the company to gear up to the point it could keep up with demand. Duncan Hines Cake Mix. Okay, so who is this Duncan Hines fellow? So he must have been like a, a really top-notch chef or baker, right? Heck no! That's the cool thing. From what I've been reading, he couldn't cook any better than I can, and, and, and that's, that's pretty bad. But he did know how to eat, and that was his claim to fame. Mr. Duncan Hines was born in Kentucky in 1880, and he was a traveling salesman. All he really wanted on the road was a decent meal. So he developed a hobby. He became an amateur restaurant critic. There weren't really restaurant critics back then. But he kept notes on cleanliness and food quality. No online reviews in those days, so fellow travelers started asking for his advice. In 1938, he decided to self-publish a book with his findings called Adventures in Good Eating. It caught on. It really took off. And eventually, he was publishing like over a quarter of a million of them, updating it every year. Okay, so how did his name get on the box of cake mix? Well, Duncan Hines didn't endorse things very often, saying his name is his livelihood and he's not about to sacrifice his good reputation for money. However, a marketer for the Grange League Federation approached him with a novel sell. He told Hines he's already upgraded the American experience dining out. How about make his name more meaningful in home products? He could upgrade American eating habits at home as well. Well, he went for this. Also, Hines would have complete control over any product that used his name. Mr. Hines was really picky. He only approved about one-fifth of the products he tested, and that cake mix produced by the Nebraska Consolidated Mills was one of them. And finally, an invention I made great use of when I was in college and wasn't eating mom's cooking every day, the TV dinner. Of course, I had absolutely no clue at the time it had been invented in Omaha, but now that I know that, it makes it even more special. As the story goes, the Swanson brothers way overestimated the number of turkeys they would sell for Thanksgiving 1952 and hit the new year with 520,000 pounds of unsold turkeys. What's interesting about this is the company had been selling frozen turkeys for years, wouldn't they have some clue how many they would normally sell during a holiday season? How could they screw this up? Well, it was intentional. This year, the company's young leader, Gilbert Swanson, a son of the founder, decided a way to eliminate the competition was to buy up all the turkeys he could find, every one, leaving none for the competitors to market, and thus they would go out of business, leaving him with no competition. You know, that kind of makes sense. Not sure what went wrong, but, bottom line, they ended up with a whole lot of frozen birds on their hands, more than they could even store. They had so many, they rented refrigerator railroad cars to store the excess. But even that wasn't easy. Keep in mind, this was back when railroad refrigerator cars used ice. Yes, real ice. So they couldn't just load up the turkeys, park the cars on a siding, plug them in, and forget them. They had to keep moving those cars every day to the ice docks down in West Council Bluffs, where an army of men would shovel in ice every day, then had to get the train cars out of the way so that more cars could come in on the through trains that needed ice. It's common to find turkey meat in the grocery store today, but that actually was pretty rare in the 1950s. Back then, a turkey pretty much was just a meal for holiday season only. Now, my friends whose cooking skills far exceed mine say there's a reason for this. A full turkey actually takes a lot of time and work to prepare. 
And also, a turkey typically serves a lot of people. So those two facts together kind of make it a special occasion only sort of meal. So over a half million pounds of turkey is a lot of meat to sell once the holidays had passed. However, the excess product did allow for some experimentation. I mean, what did Swanson have to lose? At the same time, the baby boom was hitting its peak. The GIs back from World War II had started families, and moms were busy with the little ones. And cooking takes time. So anything that promised some convenience, they were willing to give it a try. They were open to those ideas. Pre-prepared food already existed in a way. The military had been experimenting with it with prepared heatable rations, but it didn't really taste all that good. Swanson staff member Jerry Thomas made a drawing of a three-compartment tray that would keep foods from running together. And that came from an idea Gilbert Swanson had when he ate a meal on an airplane and noticed their tray that had the little dividers. So then Gilbert Swanson assigned bacteriologist Betty Cronin, a recent graduate of Duchenne College, to come up with a trio of foods that tasted good when all cooked at the same time at the same temperature. The impact was huge. This is revolutionary. We have a complete dinner with nothing extra to add and no dishes to wash. Swanson obtained a patent for the frozen TV dinner, and they rolled off the assembly line in downtown Omaha. And housewives absolutely love them. What a time saving. 10 million sold the very first year of distribution. Why was it called a TV dinner anyway? I always figured that was because one could carry it into the living room and watch TV while they ate. I mean, that's what I did. Or it could be taken to mean mom didn't have to wash dishes so she could join the rest of the family for the new American habit, and that's TV time in the living room after dinner. Actually, Swanson came up with that name because the concept was futuristic and modern, just like television, a brand new invention that was sweeping the nation by storm. So he kind of wanted to tie into that fervor. Also, uh, the tin tray kind of looked like a TV. Those early days, the size of the TV dinner tray and the typical television screen would have been pretty close to the same size. By the way, the Swanson factory that changed the future of home dining forever sat about where the Holland Performing Arts Center is today. Okay, so did we miss anything when we're talking about local foods? Any stories of your own to add? We always love hearing your comments. If you want to email, it's just information at thehistoricalsociety.org. And if you're on Facebook, come join us and hang out on our Facebook page. It's called Council Bluffs Revealed. I'm Richard Warner. Thanks for listening. The Accidentally Historic Podcast is produced by the Historical Society of Pottawatomie County in Council Bluffs, Iowa. We're on the web at thehistoricalsociety.org and on Facebook at Council Bluffs Revealed. Muriel Wagner is our president. Kat Slaughter, our museum's director. The podcast is edited and narrated by Dr. Richard Warner. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Or find us at accidentallyhistoric.com. Local history. Some good, some bad, and some very strange. We'll look forward to sharing more of it with you next time on Accidentally Historic. Accidentally Historic.